Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 27th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Inspector of Mental Health Services says she cannot provide an assurance to all parents in Ireland that their children have access to a safe, effective and evidence-based mental health service. Dr Susan Finnerty is recommending that a comprehensive strategy for CAMS and all other mental health services for children be prepared and approved by the HSE. In her final report on child and mental health services, Dr Finnerty says there are ongoing and serious deficits in CAMS, which is increasing the risk to children and young people. Access to CAMS or any mental health service for a child is causing profound distress and frustration to parents who express concern at how their child deteriorates while waiting for an assessment. Parents do not know where they can get help and information about services, saying a crisis needed to be reached before appropriate services are offered to them or that they have to battle with services before help is provided. Many young people and their families are frustrated, distressed and are trying to cope with deteriorating mental health difficulties while waiting for lengthy periods on waiting lists for essential services. There are certain groups of children and their parents who have difficulties in accessing CAMS due to language, culture, stigma, fears and location. Current systems for governing CAMS services are not working. There is a lack of basic management, information gathering and the oversight structures that are needed to operate safe and effective services. This, the report says, is contributing to inefficient and unsafe CAMs. A failure to manage risk, failure to fund and recruit key staff, failure to look at alternative models of providing services when recruitment becomes difficult and the failure to provide a standardised service across the country are all highlighted by this report. But what is most shocking about this report is that despite the criticism of services, which is damning, 
none of this is surprising to anyone who has had any dealings with CAMS. Julie Ahern, Legal Policy and Services Director with the Children's Rights Alliance, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Julie, and thanks for joining us. Uh, we've had complaints, frustration and indeed an awful lot of concern about a poor service for children and young people who have mental health problems in this country for a very long time. Do you believe that this report will be the first step to change? I think it has to be. I mean, as you said yourself, you know, this isn't a surprise to anyone, but to see it all put together and laid out so starkly in a report yesterday, it really still is a disturbing read. And I think actually this report has to be a line in the sand when it comes to CAMS. We can't leave it go on like this much longer, limping along. We need to say enough is enough. Government needs to take action now. And we need to see the recommendations by Dr. Susan Finnerty. There's 49 in total acted upon immediately. Right. Uh, is it possible to do that uh, in uh, uh, the type of time frame that uh, you would like to see it happening in? Because I think, I mean, the recommendations set out by Dr. Fennerty, I mean, some of them are big. Oh, it appears uh, that uh, the line has dropped out and is there. I'm not sure what happened uh, there with uh, Julia Hearn, uh, but we'll try to get her back on the line. Uh, It's a comprehensive uh, strategy for CAMS and all other mental health services for children uh, that is being called for here. It's the key recommendation that that strategy would be prepared and approved by the HSE. Uh, And there must be a a minimum quarterly reports on the progress of the strategy uh, to the HSE board uh, is uh, the recommendation. And I I guess that's why I was talking about the time frame, because when you talk about a a strategy for putting these services in place, it sounds as though you're back uh, to the drawing board. Uh, Julia Hearn is back on the line. Uh, Thanks uh, for Julia for coming back to us, Julia. I'm not sure what happened, uh, but uh, thanks uh, for coming back to us. Uh, It it, it does sound like you're going, we need to go back to the drawing board, that the state needs to go back to the drawing board in terms of providing services to children and adolescents, does it not? We do indeed. And I mean, it isn't as simple as just saying, let's throw some money at it. We need to actually plan out what exactly we are going to do with that and what the long-term vision is. And that has been missing for camp services in particular for a very long time. I mean, one of the key things we need to look at is regulation and we need to look at how CAM services are regulated. That is a key way of ensuring consistency across the country. So what we'd be looking for is for government to bring in legislation immediately, giving the Mental Health Commission powers to regulate CAM. What they would do then is they'd set basic standards, they'd go into services, they'd inspect them against those standards and then they'd also have the power to enforce different changes. And that's the piece we'd be missing. We've plenty of reports but no power to enforce the changes. Okay, but do we not need to throw a bit of money at it as well, given the, given the lack of services indeed. that there are? I'm sure uh, a lot of people are aware of the crisis situation that families have found themselves in uh, when somebody uh, is at very high risk of suicide and there's nowhere to go, it would seem. There is nowhere to go. And I mean, there's a complete lack of out-of-hour services. There's a complete lack of community services. What we need is a plan, though. It can't be scattergun approach, you throwing money at the problem without thinking about where it's going. So we need to plan what we need and we need to go from there. I mean, one of the key things we need to do is to look at mental health as a full continuum. So we need to be looking at 
providing more support to the community. So we know the community psychology is one area where we can look to grow. And then looking then at CAMS also alongside that. I mean, some of the key things that we need to be looking at is around the staffing issue, because we do know the staffing has been a problem. I mean, there was one, there was a couple of chinks of lighting reports as well, that, you know, there was one health area that told the team with Dr. Susan Finnerty that they had no problems recruiting staff. But this was an area where there was high numbers of senior posts, considerable training and robust governance. Mm. So it seems that if you put those structures in place, it is possible to recruit in staff and retain them. Okay, but many of the CAMS teams are significantly below what is recommended, some 50% below the recommended level. Particular shortages, the report says, in occupational therapists, social care leaders, advanced nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, psychologists, speech and language therapists, social workers, and probably most importantly of all, consultant psychiatrists because the teams are led by a consultant psychiatrist. So if you don't have a consultant psychiatrist, there is no leader for the team. Exactly. And I mean, when you list out that list, it is very stark. And if you think of a family who is in absolute crisis, it's no odds to them who who they're seeing. They need to be seeing someone. So we need to make sure that we're planning properly for staff. I mean, we saw it yesterday as well with Tusla. The high cost of living is no doubt impacting where people can get staff. It's easier to get staff or it's easier to get housing. So if you can't get housing, then you're not going to be able to work in an area. So there are things that can be done and we need to see them really take action and to think outside the box because it isn't as simple as just going, okay, raise the wages. It's actually looking at, okay, where do we need to raise the wages? Where do we have the highest density of children coming to us looking for help? Where are the crisis points? And looking at building the teams around that but also focusing on a multidisciplinary team. So making sure that we're not solely solely focused on having a psychologist in place, that there are other people who can lead a team effectively to deliver a quality service. It's not good enough in mm. this day and age. I mean, we knew in COVID that this was going to happen. We were going to have a spike in mental health difficulties for children and young people. The warning signs were there and they weren't heeded. So we really need to see government grapple with this now and to think really outside the box because it's just not good enough in this day and age that there are families sitting in crisis, probably listening right now, not knowing where to go. And then when they go, not being able to get anywhere, as you said yourself at the outset, having to fight for a service if they can get any at all. So we need to be looking at the whole trajectory mm. from the community all the way up into the acute care and looking at how we can support people along the journey to make sure that that things don't go to crisis. So if you can access something in the community, that might stop you needing to go into a CAM service or into mm. hospital. I take it in some communities you can access services uh, uh, where there is yeah. full staffing uh, and in other areas you can't. Uh, and this is why it's being described as a, a postcode lottery. Exactly. And I mean, there's nothing more disturbing when you think of where you live being the determinant of whether or not you can get healthcare services, particularly in crisis. And when you think about it, I mean, why is it that we have a postcode lottery? And if, and if you pair it back, it comes back again to that staffing level, the higher cost of living. And we, because we know what, what the problem is, we need to actually look to solve it. We can't just say, oh, look, we can't get staff in that area. We need to say, well, what will we need to do to bring the staff in? And it would appear that one of the things we need to do is to look at those areas with high cost of living, how we can ensure that the staff working on the ground who are working so hard and the report noted, I mean, they're working extra long hours. They're probably lying awake at night knowing that they can't give the service they would like to give and under considerable strain. So we need to ensure that those staff are properly looked after, properly remunerated to be in the right areas to support the children at the right time. Mm. Uh, and 
to put it into context, uh, how important is this? Is this a case, a matter of life or death? It is in some instances. And, you know, we've seen that over the years that, you know, that it can be a matter of life and death. If people cannot get help early, things can progress very quickly. I mean, the good, the good news story in this is that if people can get help early, often that can, that can help, that can be it. They can be helped, that they can move on with their lives and they can be happy. But if people are left waiting for months, for years on end to access a service, it's only going to get worse because if you're in crisis, you need help immediately. So there is a solution. The solution is early intervention. The solution is providing those services early. Mm. And what we need to see now is that plan put in place for how we're going to build a service because we've been saying this for years and years on end. And then tied to that then, we do need to see regulation because when there's legislation in place and regulation put in, basic standards can be set across the country and that would make that postcode lottery issue a little bit, it would actually fix the postcode lottery issue because every single area of the country would have to abide by the same standards of care and that would help that potluck that you get depending on where the boundary is that you live. Okay. Uh, just going back to that original point about it, uh, the report that is being of no surprise to anybody who has had any dealings with uh, CAMS. Uh, why is that the case or uh, how is that allowed to be the case, uh, probably better put? Uh, because it, it, it's well known that there is a lack of service or per service in many parts of the country. And that's widely accepted. Uh, and I'm sure this report will map out the ways of putting that right. Uh, but why have we allowed children to be failed uh, to such a degree that we have up to now at least. And I mean, that is the question. I mean, we've seen criticisms from numerous bodies, from the UN, from national bodies, from other reports. And, and we've seen piecemeal actions. We've seen little steps being taken. I mean, there is a wider issue when it comes to healthcare services and indeed just social services for children in general, where we're not seeing it get the priority it needs within government. So, for example, you know, we have, there isn't a ring fence budget for CAMS within the HSC. There isn't adequate funding given for Tusla. You know, they, they're going to need an incredibly, incredibly increase in their budget this year just to meet demand that they have coming in the door. Mm. There's a wider issue across the healthcare service and across social services for children and young people that in government they have not put, been put to, the part, put to the fore. And what we need to see now, Budget 24 is a key opportunity to make this a children's budget, to tackle child poverty and wellbeing, and also to make sure that social services that are there for children provide the services they need there and then. We can't be having cases where families are in absolute crisis for one reason or another because there is no professional there to help them. Okay, and you talk about resources and that report from Tusla, a separate report uh, yesterday, which spoke about the Child Protection Service firefighting and having to rob Peter to pay Paul so that they could allocate what were insufficient staff resources between children in care and those waiting on a social worker. Uh, this was a report that looked at the services in Dublin South West, West Wicklow and Kildare. Uh, do you believe uh, that it's reflective of services in the country? I mean, I think with this, what this is showing is goes back to that point I mentioned er- earlier about the high cost of living being inc- making incredibly difficult for staff in certain areas. So if you think of Dublin South West, 
Kildare, West Wicklow, some of the highest areas in cost of housing. So that is a challenge when it comes to recruiting staff and having them there to meet the demand. I mean, this has been signaled since 2019 by HICWA and the staff on the ground have been working incredibly hard to try to fix it, as have Tusla. But the challenge that Tusla have is that it doesn't have sufficient budget to meet the need. And what we need to see in budget 2024 is a significant investment into Tusla. I mean, that report found that there were teenagers who'd experienced sexual assault waiting, you know, 14 months, eight months, younger children waiting four months for a social worker. And not due to lack of trying by the staff on the ground, but actually just due to the lack of resources. In that team, they're short almost 2,000 hours of staff time a, a week. And that's what with the vacancies that they have. I think it's about 58 full-time staff that they are missing mm. because of recruitment issues. And that is just not good enough. We need to make sure that those families, again, this, these are families in crisis. Some of the most vulnerable children in the state are left waiting because of resources. And when we're looking down the barrel of, a, you know, we have a big surplus coming, we've heard, we've heard it being talked about, we need to see social services and healthcare services for children prioritised within this budget mm. and the staff to be put in place. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it, uh, that a four-year-old child uh, would report what could very well have been uh, a sexual assault uh, on that child by an older child. Five months later, uh, a social worker hasn't been made available to the four-year-old. Yeah, and I mean, look, it's not due to any fault of the staff there because they are literally firefighting. I mean, if you think about it, if they're short, almost 60 staff on the ground, they are just trying to keep things going and they are working incredibly hard all the time to try to do that. But when you don't have the staff, it's very hard. I mean, there is a solution around this. There is a model in Galway and in the West called Barnhouse. And what that does is it brings together the different um, needs that are there when there is when there is something like an allegation of sexual assault. So it would bring together child protection, medical, therapeutic and the guarantee under one roof. And that is one way to make sure that when allegations are made of sexual assault, that children and young people are given the service they need immediately, be it a medical service, be it a social worker to look at what happened, or be it a guard, a guard investigation. But they're all together under one roof, which means that it's, it's an easier service for children to access. It's more holistic. They're not sitting on three, four waiting lists. And this has worked in the West. They pilot in the West for a while and it's worked very well. So this would be a no-brainer in terms of putting the funding in place to allow TUSLA and the services to expand this across the country. So that, as you say, when you have four-year-olds or teenagers making allegations of sexual assault, which is, you know, incredibly difficult for, for the child, for the family, that they're given these services immediately and that they're looked after in a way that they need to be. Okay, Julie, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us today. That's uh, Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services uh, Director with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Many of uh, the shops are already planning their winter sales. There's a warning for them from the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. They'll be watching to make sure that discounts are genuine and that customers are not being misled. Let's speak to Duran Sweeney, Head of Corporate and Stakeholder Communications with the CCPC. Uh, A very good morning to you, Duran, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. What is it that you're concerned about? Yeah, so the pricing, there was legislation that came in at the end of last year called the Price Indication Regulations. So the regulations mean retailers must base a discount on the lowest price an item was for sale in the previous 30 days. 
So to give, I suppose, this, make this practical, for example, if a coat is usually for sale for 70 euro, the retailer couldn't, can't raise the price to 100 euro for a couple of days and then drop it back to 70 euro and claim that, that it's a 30% discount. So it's all about transparency. God forbid, so we, they wouldn't do that, would they? No. <laughs> <laughs> We would have heard, I thought, before this legislation, traders should never have misled misled consumers and there's general consumer protection law, but there was no specific rules that said the time frame or made, you know, unlike now. So that the coat that that you're talking about could have been 70 euro on Wednesday, 100 euro on Thursday and on sale then on Friday for 70 euro, the same price it was on Wednesday. Exactly, right. and, and advertise as a 30% discount. Yeah. That can't happen mm. now. Um, okay. So for a start, the, the business can't say that that is a 30% discount. What they have to, to do is to look at the lowest point the price that coat was in the previous 30 days, and any discount that they're saying, the 30%, 20% has to be compared to that lowest price, not the highest price in the 30 days, the lowest price. And also, it must, they must tell the consumer what the lowest price was in the 30 days. So there's a lot of transparency there, um, and that's the benefit of, of these regulations. Now, we enforce a number of different consumer protection laws, mm. and we do um, market surveillance and monitoring all the time. And we did an analysis um, to look to see at the start of the year what were businesses advertising in terms of their sales. What we saw was quite concerning in that we hadn't seen businesses at that stage starting to make the changes that they need to. So they weren't showing necessarily the 30-day lowest price and they weren't necessarily advertising um, the, the discount based on that, thir- that lowest price. Mm. And which is kind of foolish because if people realise that the shop was trying to make a, a fool out of them, it won't go down well and could have a, a very negative impact on uh, the company image. Oh, without a doubt. And I suppose that's the power that's in consumers' hands now because they mm. can talk about social media and all that. But I think as a, as a basic principle as a consumer, I, particularly now when we want our money, we need our money to work harder, you know, having that headspace and time to to go online, to compare, to make sure, you know, you're, you're not being misled to thinking you're getting a 50% discount on a TV. But actual reality, you know, if you, if you look at a different business, they're charging, you know, not an advertised discount and it's cheaper. Like, you know, there are obligations and there's a point that a consumer can only do so much and we can only expect a consumer to do so much. But the, really, these regulations put the onus back on the business, not on the consumer to compare, mm. not on the consumer to do anything. The onus now is on the business. And it's not too much to ask not to be misled. So yeah. I think it's really positive. Now, for a business, this is good as well, too, because, I mean, why should you miss out? If you're doing legitimate sales and your discounts are legitimate, why should you lose customers to someone that's advertising a 60% sale down the road and you know that their products were never that price or that they typed it up? So it, mm. it benefits both as well, too. So Right. If they try to cut us like that, rip us off exactly. like that, uh, we won't shop there again and we'll tell our friends not to shop there again and anybody who listens but how on earth are we ever going to know? Uh, like that coat, €70 euro on Wednesday, €100 euro on Thursday, €70 euro on sale on Friday. How would we ever know that it was €70 euro two days ago? Well, now the business won't be able to do this. So the business will have to show that the previous price in the last 30 days was €70 euro, and the discount, so if their thing is 30% discount, it needs to be on that €70, euro, not on the €100. Euro. So a business cannot mislead you this way now and that's that's the benefit of these rules. Right, and that's the law. So that is the law. what is the consequence for breaking the law? 
Yeah, so this is one of a number of different consumer protection laws that all, I suppose, interchange with each other and they, I suppose, they come as a package. So if a business doesn't do this and we, we become aware and we, we look to find evidence that, that they haven't done, there's a various different tools we can use so we can issue a compliance notice that legally compels the business from here on in to follow the law. We can issue an on-the-spot fine called a fixed um, payment notice. Um, up to we can prosecute a business, we can go to court with a business and we can fine them up to €5,000. So there's a range of different strong penalties because this is misleading um, that that can be. Now, in the first instance, we'll always try to to get the business on side and quickly resolve the issue. But there are harsh penalties for businesses who continually mislead consumers in this way. Okay, and that's the warning to businesses, to retailers. Uh, What about people selling online? Uh, Does it apply only to Irish companies online? EU legislation, so not Irish, but EU legislation. So it is, it is within the EU companies um, anywhere in, within the EU. Outside of that, it, it, they should do this, but I suppose if they don't, you're, you're, you as a consumer, us as an enforcement body, it's harder for us to get the business to do it. So it's one in any circumstances we would always recommend a consumer think strongly about buying from an EU website or an EU business because these rights are guaranteed. They're not guaranteed if you buy outside the EU. Mm. And do you think that it might actually lead to more legitimate sales uh, where items are actually being discounted uh, on offer at discounted prices? Because people love sales. Uh, And if they've been duped in the past, uh, well, they didn't realise it, obviously. Uh, And if there are laws in place now to prevent it from happening, uh, well, then you have to offer people something. And that may be the way businesses are looking at it. Absolutely. And I think the fact you can see the price for yourself, it's not just that you have to rely on that 30% or 20%, you know, to know that that's accurate, but you can actually see they're required to show you that price. I think it is important that, that it is absolutely that, and we're hoping to see with a little bit more time, confidence will, will become increased with consumers. We have previously done research which showed low levels of confidence in offers, um, and we'd like to see that increase. Um, at this point, and that's why we're at now in terms of is it's bedding in. We were engaging with businesses to make them aware that these were the changes. We're now shifting, and that's why we're out. We're ma- making this warning today. We're out now saying this is a, a priority, and what we expect to see is businesses will start to toe the line and update very quickly what their offers are. So by next year, hopefully, consumers will have that much more confidence to go, yeah, actually, I'm getting this good deal. Um, it is a good deal, um, and I can I can trust what I'm seeing in the shops or online. Okay, well. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning ahead of Black Friday and some of these other big sales uh, that we'll all uh, be very uh, eager uh, to get bargains in. Uh, There is a a word of warning to those who are offering those bargains. That's Darren Sweeney, Head of Corporate and Stakeholder Communications with the CCPC. That's uh, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. Now to some of the comments. A number of people in touch with us about CAMS. uh, That's the Child and Adolescent Mental Health services. Why don't the HSE in Tusla open on Saturdays and Sundays to help poor children? It's terrible, uh, says Olivia in Drogheda. Thank you indeed uh, for your WhatsApp message to the programme uh, this morning. Um, we'd uh, somebody else in touch with us uh, who says that they're now a stay-at-home mam, but a very highly experienced mental health nurse. I applied for a nursing position a few years ago after taking a break to spend time with my young children. The HSE failed me on the interview by 1% because I was out of nursing for more than five years. 
Why? Read between the lines. I know why. I was too expensive to pay. I have now decided not to ever return to nursing as, to be honest, it wouldn't suit my home life. I'm putting me first. The HSE, unfortunately, don't see that. I, I would have made a big difference for others, as I do with my own family and friends. It's an absolute disgrace what's going on and the children are seriously suffering. I can see it with my own children's peers. There is no help out there. Thank you uh, as well, as I say, uh, for your WhatsApp message. Another caller says, I had a nephew who needed help 50 years ago. I've been listening to the same excuses for this length of time. God help parents. Uh, he never got help. Thank you uh, as well. I, I think uh, it's interesting to get that message uh, talking about uh, people in a, a crisis situation 50 years ago today uh, and this report that we're talking about today uh, and how dire the services are for children and adolescents, for young people. Uh, given uh, all of the problems uh, that Sinead O'Connor had through her life uh, as a, a very young children, problems that stemmed, she believed, I think, uh, as a result of the way her mother abused her. Um, you would have thought that in that period of time that most of us have grown up through, uh, that things would have been better. And it is terrible to think that we are failing young people on such an incredible scale and that we know about it and we've known about it for as long as, I don't know how long is a piece of string, we've known about it forever it seems Uh, and it's one of those things that comes up now and then, goes off the radar, comes back again and so on but hopefully this report will lead to some change. If you'd like to make comment on our programme today, our telephone number is 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you remember the cyber attack on the HSE. It cost an awful lot of money. What it actually cost it will never be known in terms of patient care. It was a really serious breach of the National Health Service and hopefully nothing like that will ever happen again. Let's speak, though, to Independent Senator Jared Crockwell, who's been looking at ways of preventing attacks like that and has developed a system together with the Louth and Mead Education and Training Board. A very good morning to you, Senator Crockwell, uh, and thanks uh, for joining us. Tell us a, a little bit about the work that you've been doing with LMETB uh, and your digital cyber programme. Uh, good morning. Good morning to your listeners. Yes, indeed. Um, after the um, the sign of to upskill the nation in cyber awareness. So, uh, Martin O'Brien Executive Officer of ETB. Uh, Martin has the Advanced Manufacturing uh, Training Centre of Excellence in Dundalk. It's, uh, County Loud has to be really proud of that. It is the most amazing organisation. So we started to work on putting together. Okay, Jared, uh, I, I, I'm afraid we're plagued Sorry, by... Uh, yeah, we have a, a dreadful line uh, and it's close to impossible to hear uh, what you're saying. Uh, we'll need to try and improve on that line uh, and come back to you. Uh, apologies uh, for that. Uh, while we're trying to do that, let me uh, read an email that comes uh, to us from Ian Rice in Dundalk. He says, Dear Michael, I wonder if you could appeal to drivers to think about the way they park when they come into the town, especially... In 
if the parking isn't marked out for them. This is not the biggest issue in the world, but it gets under my skin and I bet it is a bugbearer for anyone who doesn't have a driveway. I can't tell you how often I cannot park outside of my house or how I can't get parking on my street because of bad parking. One or two cars parked badly can mess up the whole street. I live beside a busy shop and I know people aren't thinking too much about the way they park because they aren't going to be there too long. What they don't realise is that if they park four or five feet back from the nearest car, it makes a parking space unavailable. The problem really arises if another car arrives and parks before they leave. If the second car parks up to the badly parked car, it means parking is completely out of sequence and parking on the street loses a parking space or two. I'm sure this isn't done intentionally but it is terrible when you get home with a car full of shopping and you can't get anywhere to park near your house simply because somebody wasn't thinking when they parked earlier. Yes, they were only there a couple of minutes and no, they didn't mean any harm but can you please ask people to think about the way that they do park, imagine that the parking is lined out and park in your space so that you don't cause this inconvenience for residents. Thank you, Ian Rice in Dundalk for your email. Michael at lmfm.ie is our email address. I think we have Independent Senator Jared Crockwell on the line and uh, you were telling us about this programme uh, that you've developed in conjunction with LMETB. That's correct, Michael. Um, Martin O'Brien, the executive officer, approached him need to up the country. Uh, he grabbed the edge and came in four square behind me with his manufacturing centre, uh, training centre of excellence. Yeah. Okay, Jared. I, I think we'll have to try and come back to you maybe later in the program uh, when you're in a better area. I, I presume you're on a mobile, and uh, the coverage is uh, really making it uh, impossible. Apologies for that, uh, and hopefully we can come back to you uh, a little bit later on in the program today. Well, uh, we've all been shocked by the news of Sinead O'Connor, and not. Um, we'll uh, speak to Stuart Clark of uh, Hot Press in a, a few moments' time. Uh, but what do you say? I don't know. I'm kind of lost for words. Um, maybe uh, you want to share your thoughts with us. Uh, we certainly would like to hear from you if you want to talk to us uh, about Sinead O'Connor at uh, some stage you can phone us 0419832000 text or WhatsApp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie um, There were some very interesting aspects uh, to Sinead O'Connor and one of them uh, was that she wanted to be a priest. She became a priest, uh, a Tridentine priest, uh, which I think uh, the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't uh, recognise. But uh, she wrote in her autobiography, I'm certain part of the reason I became a singer was that I couldn't become a priest given that I had a vagina and a pair of breasts however insignificant. I always had an interest in working with dying people because I was always a person who believed very much in an afterlife and in the lack of need to fear death, which I discerned from having had the Gospels drilled into me. I figured that was Jesus's reason for coming to earth. That seemed to sink in to such a degree that only now, as I'm writing about my songs, have I become aware that an awful lot of them are about death or talking to dying people or where the narrator is a dead person. 
the very first song that I ever wrote, in fact, Take My Hand, featured an angel singing to a dying old man, Come with me, everything's going to be rosy. It was an unusual subject for a 14-year-old to be writing about. Uh, She uh, says that, uh, or said in her book, that every album was a diary uh, and each song represented a a part of her life. uh, And she wrote uh, a number of things about her mother, uh, remembered her mother uh, all the time, I think, when she sang Nothing Compares to You. But uh, in her biography, she uh, says she remember, I do not want what I haven't got. Great track. Uh, But she said of that, I I see again that the themes of death, dying and communicating from the beyond are everywhere. Uh, And um, that that track uh, actually had to do with how her sister um, couldn't forgive her mother for the abuse uh, that both of them endured. Uh, She said uh, it, it was dark and interesting. I went to see a medium and my mother came through. Uh, My mother asked my sister to forgive her for what she had done to all of us, but my sister would not forgive her. Uh, And while I understood this, it it made me very, very sad for my mother's soul. I was so young and didn't know any better. And then that night I had a a dream in which my mother came to me for uh, the first time since she had died a year and a half earlier. In the dream, I told my mother I was sorry that my sister couldn't forgive her. My mother said, I do not want what I haven't got. My mother meant that she didn't deserve my sister's forgiveness and that she knew she didn't deserve it so that I shouldn't feel sorry for her. Uh, That's uh, just uh, part of uh, Sinead's uh, own writing about her her life and her biography. Uh, And as I say, I'm not sure what any of us can really say. Um, She's been part of her life, all of her lives, hasn't she? Uh, And uh, it's a a great loss, not just uh, to the music industry, but indeed to social commentary. Uh, you might want to remember her with us. 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. And everywhere is war Until the ignoble and unhappy regime Which holds all of us through Child abuse, yeah Child abuse, yeah Subhuman bondage has been toppled, utterly destroyed. Everywhere is war. As I said earlier on, it is difficult to find uh, the words uh, to express uh, the shock and uh, lack of surprise at the same time. Uh, on hearing the news of the death of Sinead O'Connor, uh, let's. Uh, listen to what President Michael D. Higgins said uh, as part of his statement he said Sinead O'Connor's voice and delivery was in so many different ways original extraordinary and left one with a deep impression that to have accomplished all she did while carrying the burden which she did was a powerful achievement in its own way. Her contribution joins those great achievements of Irish women who contributed to our lives, its culture and its history in their own unique but unforgettable ways. May her spirit find the peace she sought in so many different ways. Children, children, fight. We find it necessary. We know we will.
We have confidence in the victory of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. Sinead O'Connor had some enemies and in uh, that infamous Saturday Night Live uh, performance uh, you heard her there rip up uh, that photograph of uh, the Pope because of her objections to clerical child sexual abuse. Stuart Clark is uh, the Deputy Editor of Hot Press. A a very good morning to you Stuart. Thanks uh, for joining us on this sad day. I I think uh, it's a kind of John F. Kennedy day for Irish people in particular. I think the whole country stopped when we heard the news yesterday in a state of somewhat disbelief. What are your thoughts this morning? Well, as you say, just incredibly sad. Um, Being an older man, I remember 1987. It was a a male-dominated society, and certainly the music industry was male-dominated. She came along. There was no real precedent for her in Ireland. I was on a radio station in Limerick. Someone sent me Mandinka, the single on vinyl, with a note attached saying, this is special, and I played it. And yeah, it was like hearing Bowie in 1972 doing Starman or the Pistols doing Anarchy in the UK. It was just unlike anything I've heard. It was a once in a generation voice and a once in a generation person. Like I say, there have been many fine Irish female singers, but none with something as important to say as Sinead. And with that determination to be heard, despite the fact that at times it was hugely detrimental to her career to say these things. She was always ahead of the curve, I think, to 1990 and Black Boys on Mopeds, which was two years before the L.A. riots, um, reflecting on, on police targeting young black men and, of course, generations before George Floyd. And she was always spot on. She was spot on about the church. She was spot on about racism and, and so many other things. Um, but the, the thing it all boils down to really is the voice. Mm. No doubt about it. Uh, but when you talk about the 1980s and uh, a male-dominated Irish music market, I remember that uh, too well uh, uh, myself. Uh, and what I remember uh, of Sinead is that uh, we had Philo, then Geldof, then Bono, and then Sinead, but no one liked any of them afterwards. Well, she opened doors, um, even though her views on the church would have differed quite radically from Dolores O'Riordan. Dolores sort of said it was seeing Sinead standing up and saying stuff that emboldened her. So I think there are artists who probably would have done their thing, but they were deeply affected by Sinead. I imagine there are young kids now starting to sing because of her. Um, One of the things I think can be lost sometimes, and it's very similar with Dolores, Sinead was extremely wickedly funny. She had this cackle like a witch almost. And she had a repertoire of really <laughs> off-colour jokes that I, I couldn't possibly mention uh, this time of day, or, or even off-air. There's one about the Archbishop of Canterbury, which I'll tell you one day over a pint. <laughs> okay, she, she, was, she, she was wicked, and I loved that. When I interviewed her on multiple occasions, she was feisty. She would challenge you. You know, she would say, no, no, no. She'd argue, but there's a glint in her eye. She wanted to hear your opinion. It wasn't a monologue. She wanted a conversation. Mm-hmm. She enjoyed that. It was, it was sport in a way. But my goodness, Michael, the charisma. She'd be behind you. You wouldn't even know she'd walked into the room, but you would. There's something about the woman. She was teeny tiny, but, you know, she had a, a beautiful smile. And when she laughed, you know, her whole body shook. 
And in amongst the, the, the sadness, uh, and it is desperately, desperately tragic what's happened to her. And of course, a, a year ago, her son, Shane. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm trying to remember her in top form because she was a thing of beauty. Mm, there wasn't an issue that Sinead O'Connor didn't have an opinion on, was there? No, and it, it's come out this morning, her act of generosity towards the LGBTQI community in terms of donating clothes and other mementos to one trans uh, charity. And it was all under the radar. Um, I was one of the judges on the inaugural Choice Music Prize Classic Irish Album in, in April. And when we got in the room, there was only one person who was going to get it. It, it was Sinead. We were all agreed. The argument was which of her albums, because there's four or five, you could say, mm. are, are, are definitive. In the end, we went for I do not want what I haven't got, because what she was singing about then is as relevant today. And music, as you know, dates very quickly, but there was a freshness. It, it, it could have been made yesterday mm. and that's remarkable um you know she she had her troughs and this is probably not the time or place to reflect on her mental health struggles but that obviously was the key of everything that happened she she did struggle and when she was in in, in good form she was a joy and when she was in bad form you know it, it was it was difficult and obviously her career was stop start because of that but all of her records are immaculate you know the, the most recent one 2016 I'm not bossy, I'm the boss, from start to finish. Mm. And she had a habit of, of stealing the show, whatever she was doing, you know, that weekend, you know, the, the album came out and then she played Electric Picnic. Things on the Sunday afternoon, about six o'clock, her, her daughter, Roshi, was singing with her. It was the set of the weekend. Mm. And I was at the um, Shane McGowan birthday celebrations in the National Concert Hall 2018. She wasn't scheduled to play, turned up at the last minute, walked on wearing a hoodie, we thought it was a roadie, but then the hood came back and she sang. And again, there was all these major stars like Nick Cave on, on the bill. Everyone agreed Sinead stole the show because that voice and that presence. Yeah. Uh, I was just reading from her, her book earlier on uh, about the track, I Do Not what, Want What I Haven't Got, uh, and how she had a, a dream uh, in which her, her mother came to her uh, hoping to get forgiveness for the way she had uh, abused Sinead and her sister Emer, uh, and Emer couldn't forgive her, and her mother accepted that, saying, I do not want what I haven't got, which was the forgiveness. Uh, and uh, She seems to have been haunted by her mother through her, her life. Uh, her mother didn't want girls uh, and attempted to damage her reproductive organs. She was locked out of the house at one stage by her mother, forced to sleep in the garden. Uh, there's a quote 
wrote uh, about that from Sinead saying I, I knelt on the ground in front of the gable wall and wailed up to the landing window to get her to let us into the house when it got dark that is when I officially lost my mind and became afraid of the size of the sky that's why I'm agoraphobic I find it difficult being outside I don't mind when it turns into black night but once the hours of dusk come I get very anxious uh, that uh, I think tells its own story does it not Stuart? I'm glad you mentioned the Rememberings book. It's no mere collection of anecdotes, so there are some very funny stories. I, I think, you know, she did, in some people's eyes, get reduced to a bit of a cartoon. And this book deeply humanises her and, and explains a lot. It's a very honest book, and I, I'm led to believe I was speaking to somebody involved with the publishing of it. Uh, she wrote it herself. It wasn't ghosted, and there was very little sort of tweaking by the editor. It, it's, and you can actually hear her when you're reading it. Um, bizarrely, in a way, nothing compares that the fine documentary on her, uh, which was made here, um, is premiering. It was due to premiere this Saturday on, on Sky Docs. If you haven't seen it, again, it gives a wonderful insight into a person that you, you, you kind of think you know, but of course, I don't think anyone knew the, the real Sinead 100%. She was a, an incredibly complex woman. Um, I, as I say, would interview her three or four times. There was a consistency that she would stick up for the underdog. Like when we, uh, you know, she got the award um, uh, in uh, Vicar Street in, 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 in um, April. She dedicated it, as was her want, to the Ireland uh, refugee community. And again, you know, she wanted them to have a voice. And if they weren't able to speak for themselves, she'd amplify what was going on. Um, so she was remarkably consistent, as I say, down through the years in saying things that were important, but not necessarily sort of were going to be cheered and clapped by everybody. Mm. No, quite the opposite, uh, I would think. Uh, the essence of uh, alternative in terms of an artist. There's one moment, actually, I, I, I was thinking about last night. I was lucky enough in 1999, we had a hot press hall of fame. It's now the Academy venue. And we inducted Dr. Nina Simone, who we couldn't believe actually was able to come across. Who better to present this award than, than Sinead O'Connor? And Sinead went up to her and sort of bowed a little bit. And Nina Simone said, hey, hey child, don't be bowing at me. You know, I should be bowing at you. And if Dr. Nina Simone thinks you're doing a good job of, of representing the underdog and the underclass, then, then you're doing a good job. Because mm. Nina Simone would have struggled so hard during the 60s. And she obviously recognised in Sinead a, a kindred spirit. And I, I don't know if I mentioned the term earlier, but, you know, it, 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 a bit like Dylan, she was a, a protest singer. You know, she became a rock star, but that wasn't really what she wanted. She could kind of take or leave the fame. She was a protest singer. Mm. And, and I think that's the, the, the epitaph I put on her. Yeah, well, I, I think with nothing compares to you. Uh, she was uh, on that trajectory to becoming a, an international pop star and then just threw that out the window by ripping up uh, the photograph of the Pope uh, on primetime American television. And, of course, there was a, an awful lot of protests about that. And you talk about her sense of humour. Uh, she went to one of those protests, didn't she, after she, <laughs> she she saw an ad which said, bring us your Sinead O'Connor albums and we'll crush it for you. No, she was delighted because she sold quite a few extra copies of that record on the back of it. Um, I was talking not long ago to David Holmes, the um, producer whose soundtrack mm -hmm. Killing Eve and, like, hundreds of big movies and Sinead's been or had been traveling up um for two or three days every month or so to him in in Belfast assembling a new record now during lockdown she released uh, one of the tracks she'd recorded Troubles of the World a beautiful Mahalia Jackson um cover 
uh, around the George Floyd um, uh, killing and, and was donating the money to, to BLM charities. And David's got a very good ear and uh, he's wanted to work with her for a long, long time. And he says, you know, in his humble opinion, uh, it's the best thing she's ever done. So w- when the time is good and proper, there'll, there'll, there'll be some new music. And um, again, it's easy to you know, think of Sinead for lots of other reasons apart from being a working musician. But, you know, whenever she went on stage, whether it was a club or, or Madison Square Garden, she, she gave it socks. Everyone was mesmerized. And the quality of her songwriting, you know, she went on a few interesting sort of diversions. She was a massive reggae fan. She just mm. worshipped Bob Marley. Mm. Get a reggae album, went and hung out in, in, in Jamaica and enjoyed the island. Well, a lot of people wouldn't have gone there because, you know, the common wisdom was it was too dangerous. But no, nope, Sinead was in like Flynn. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I'd just been dipping into some of her back catalogue. And you, you forget because she perhaps wasn't as quite in the public eye or on top of the pops at certain points in her career. But the hits may have dried up, but the quality of the songs never did. Mm, and the voice, uh, as you say, never changed. Uh, wherever that came from, if there's a, a God, it was God-given. Uh, and uh, I would imagine that uh, many people would wish that they could hear that voice again. Uh, and that uh, came as a, a very pleasant surprise, uh, I think, to a, a lot of people yesterday. There's an 11th album that has been recorded in full. That's right. I think she was putting the finishing touches. I mean, rather tra- tragically, last week, the, the last message I saw, I think there were messages after, was she'd moved back to London, uh, where she had a good, you know, gang of friends. Um, she was finishing off the album. Uh, she was announcing plans to America in 2024. As they say, on the night of the uh, Choice Music Prize, we didn't expect her to turn up. She was there. You, you could tell the, the trauma of losing Shane was weighing heavy on her shoulders, but she, she was in good form. And uh, I was talking to Pat Kenny recently, and uh, Pat had a, uh, ran into her at a private dinner and said that she was very philosophical about what had happened, but was looking forward to the future. So, you know, when you hear that she, she was, she'd found some, some, some hope and some light in her life, uh, and, and now to hear she, she's no longer with us, it seems doubly cruel. But look, it, it was a life less ordinary um i think you know we're, we're forgetting some of the maybe comedic stuff or people used to poke fun at her and we're just remembering what she actually gave us how brave she was uh, and what just a, a true irish original the lady is Stuart, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, today very very sad day uh, i think for everybody uh, and very difficult to know what to say so thanks uh, for remembering her as vividly and uh putting into context uh, how important uh, she has been uh, in music, uh, in social commentary and in all of our lives. Stuart Clark is uh, the Deputy Editor of Hot Press. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, close to 12,000 members of Angarda Shia Connor, who are members of the Garda Representative Association, are to be balloted on a vote of no confidence in the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris. The results of that vote will be followed by a special delegate conference to discuss the results. Uh, Let's speak now to Tara McManus, who's Assistant General Secretary of the GRA. And a very good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Um, Why have you decided to take this action? Good morning, Michael. Um, I suppose this comes as a result of 
you know, a number of issues that have been, you know, to the forefront of um, the media and ourselves, the GRA, for the last number of months. And I have spoken to you and your listeners extensively of some of these issues over the past number of weeks and months. Um, and our membership have come to a stage where they just feel that the commissioner is not listening to us. He's not recognising that we have these issues. So these issues are things like garden morale. You know, the commissioner is on record saying that he doesn't believe there is an issue with garden morale. Our members would tell us but that is not the case. The garden morale is at its lowest that it's been in quite some time. We have issues, obviously, we are in the midst of a very serious recruitment and retention crisis. And again, I've spoken to you about this before, about the fact that we just cannot fill training spaces in the Garda College and that we are losing so many members to, to resignations. Up until the end of June, we lost 71 members this year alone. Um, in 2022, we lost 107 Garda members. Um, and that would see us at a 200% increase in Garda resignations. For instance, if you look back to 2017, only 47 members resigned. Uh, there were lots of other issues as well. Uh, for instance, we have over 116 members on long-term suspension. And we would say that our suspension policy is not at all fair. It is not allowing these members to access fair procedures with regards to the investigation into their alleged wrongdoing. Uh, the assaults on our members, an average of a 1,000 assaults on our members every day. Every 31 hours, a Garda member gets assaulted. Um, appropriate training. Um, our members haven't received proper in-classroom training in about five years and we have a serious issue in regards to driver training and again that has been well publicised in the media that a lot of our drivers are driving on what is known as CBD1 driving which means they cannot activate blue lights and sirens to respond to calls at the top of all this is the welfare of our members. So they're dealing with all these issues, the amount of red tape we're dealing with, the bureaucracy in relation to all these online systems that have been introduced in the hopes of making life easier for guards, but are now actually asking our members to spend 33% more time in front of the PC instead of out dealing with the community. And I suppose what, what the, the, the straw was that broke the camel's back was what I discussed with you and your, your listeners last week, which was the Commissioner's decision to revert us back to the pre-COVID Roster. We would see that that roster is not workable. In November of last year, the Commissioner wrote to the, the GRA and said that he had concerns about um, sending us back to that old 6-4 roster. And he said that he didn't have the manpower to do it. He felt it was no longer feasible. It would result in a significant reduction in service delivery in areas such as domestic abuse investigations, divisional drug units would be disbanded and that it would lead to a reduction in numbers in the national bureaus. Now we're actually down 300 members since the Commissioner wrote that letter to us in November. Mm. So we cannot see how if in November it was not feasible six months later with 300 less members, how it now could be feasible. So it's an accumulation of all these... Well, it's a very long list of problems, it has to be said, Tara. Uh, And do you believe that the Commissioner, um, the the boss, is responsible for all of these problems? Well, at the end of the day, Michael, he is the CEO of Angarda Sheikhan, and we believe there are a number of those issues that he could address immediately. I mean, the reason our, our members are leaving is because they don't feel valued. They don't feel that they feel that they're overworked. They feel that there isn't the welfare support for them. These are issues that could be dealt with fairly quickly by the Commissioner in his role as, you know, the manager of the Guard organisation. Uh, in relation to the assault, appropriate training, they're not issues that need to be dealt with by the government. They're issues that need to be dealt with in-house by the Guard Commissioner. 
So although we, we know that some of those issues are outside of his control, such as, you know, recruitment, I mean, you know, we know that the finances are available there to bring people in. If people don't want to join the Guards, that's outside of the Commissioner's control. But we believe the majority of those issues are within his control and with this, within his remit to put some sort of solutions in place. But our biggest issue is that the Commissioner is not acknowledging that these are, in fact, problems. And until he acknowledges that they are problems, how are we going to find solutions for them? Right. And do you believe that working in Angarda Shia Khanna has changed since uh, Drew Harris's stewardship? We believe that there has been, yeah, there, there, there has been a, a negative change. There's a, an introduction to, to something called the Operational Policing Model, and that was signed in by government. That policy or that model has been rolled out in the UK and in, in the Scottish police forces. It has failed and failed miserably. And there are statistics and, and proof from our colleagues in the UK to back that up. And yet he is going ahead with pushing this uh, this model in. This model is all about reducing the amount of guards that are outside and outlaying stations, reducing the number of people that are available to deal within the community. It's about creating hubs. But we know that these hubs are not working in other jurisdictions. They're not working in the various guarded divisions that they've already been employed in. They're creating this huge level of bureaucracy uh, that we've spoken about before. And it's taking our guards away from being investigators and turning them into administrators. And we've seen last week with the assault that happened in Dublin, there are less guardy on the streets. You know, everybody can see that. You don't see guards on the beat anymore. That is simply because, firstly, there aren't enough of them. And secondly, the ones that are working are inside in front of computers trying to get through the huge levels of paperwork and bureaucracy that are now part of this OPM, this operation policing model that is just not working. Okay. What uh, is the objective of uh, this ballot? What what, What are you hoping to come out of it? Well, I suppose that's very dependent, Michael, on what the result actually is. Um, and, you know, if, if if it turns out that our membership do have confidence in, in Drew Harris, well, then as, a, as an association, we need to reflect on where we go from there. However, if, it, it, if the ballot tells us that our membership doesn't have confidence in Drew Harris and in his leadership, then we need to have a look at that. We will um, be putting on a special delegate conference after that result is in and we will sit down with our delegates around the country and we will come up with, I suppose, a plan. We are very much a solution-based organisation and we really do want to find viable solutions to these problems. We've been trying to work with the Commissioner, we've been asking him to meet with us, we've also been writing to the Minister for Justice on several occasions asking her to meet with us. She hasn't met with us Commissioner has not addressed our problems. He has not recognised these problems. So our special delegate conference at that stage uh, will decide where where our next step is and where we go from here. Right. Um, it's just hard to understand what the plan might be. Uh, wh- would that mean perhaps uh, that your vote would uh, hold such weight that the minister might uh, speak to Drew Harris, consult with you, speak to Drew Harris and uh, ask him to uh, adopt a, a different approach or are you hoping to for a, a situation where he, Drew Harris would be removed and replaced as Garda Commissioner? 
Well, look, they are big decisions, Michael, and they are decisions that can only be made by our delegates at a special delegate conference. We have long been asking the the Commissioner and indeed the Minister to sit down and and to address these issues with us. And as I said, our letters to date have have pretty much gone unanswered. So, I mean, that is a huge area and and a huge area of concern for us, but more for our membership. Our membership just at this stage cannot take any more. Um, as I said last week, very much that straw that broke the camel's back in relation to the return. Mm. To the well, you're not all going. You're not all going to retire. So, what happens next if there's a, a majority of those ballots who say they have no confidence in Drew Harris as the Guard Commissioner, and your letters are ignored, nobody meets you, nobody's listening, and so on? What then uh, is action? Uh, proposed or will it be contemplated? Will there be industrial action? Will there be strikes or work to rule or anything like that? Well, obviously, Michael, as a disciplined organisation, we are precluded from from actually uh, undertaking any sort of industrial action uh, like that. And that's something that really is a last straw for Angarda Síochána. But they are decisions that can only be made at a special delegate mm. conference. But it wouldn't be the first time that you took industrial action. Uh, the blue flu uh, is uh, not that long ago that people have forgotten. Uh, no, it isn't. And I was a young student back in the blue flu, and I do remember having to be having to, to don my my gear and head out as a, as a student and actually work for the blue flu. Yes, uh, 1998. So it is. It's quite some time ago since that happened. But yeah, look, their decisions at our special delegate conference and our delegates there would have to make. But I, I do feel you know some sort of action possibly is in the pipeline. As I said, we are precluded from taking industrial action in relation to strikes, and we would we would never you know, instruct our members to withdraw their, their services or anything like that. But um, these are these are issues that are, that are, I suppose, a little bit down the line. But this is a first step for us, and it is an unprecedented step for the GRA to actually look for, for this particular ballot to be carried out. So I suppose we are in uncertain waters, but we'll be reliant on our membership to come back and guide us as to what way they would like us to take the next step. OK, and the results will be in six weeks or so, is it? Yeah, it takes about six weeks for a ballot like that to actually go go back to the membership and actually come back and and have those ballots counted. And at that stage, yeah, as I said, once we have the results, we will set a date for a special delegate conference and we will sit down together as an organisation and decide on our next step. That's a very long time, isn't it, for such division in a disciplined force? Yeah, it is. But I suppose these these things tend to take time. And as I said, it's not it's not something that we uh, have undertook lightly. And we do understand the ramifications for it. Um, but as I said, at this stage, our membership just feel that they cannot take any more, and have asked us as their representative association to take to take this step and to um, to move forward with it. Okay, Tara, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us today. That's Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary with uh, the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, UNESCO is uh, the United Nations Education, Science and Culture Agency and UNESCO is recommending uh, that smartphones should be banned from schools to tackle classroom disruption, improve learning and to help protect children from cyberbullying. Let's speak uh, to Senator Erin McGreehan, who's Finnefall's spokesperson on children. Uh, a very good morning to you, Senator McGreehan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. What do you make of this recommendation from UNESCO? Um, thanks for having me on about this, Michael, because it's something I actually last June released a statement about in supporting um, a group of parents in Wicklow who made a pact um, that while their children would be in primary school, that there would be no smartphones. 
Um, and I called for, at that time, a national approach. And as my and as did my party colleagues, that we should be looking at a, a similar national a national approach to safeguard youth mental health. Exactly what you said, and exactly what um, UNESCO said was, you know, with, with collective action, we can support young people growing up, a better education, you know, better better mental health, you know, and and, and support a more a positive relationship towards smartphones whilst we all agree that the you know digital world is is wonderful and it holds an awful lot of opportunities we all are gaining gaining perspective on it mm. that we need to be able to disconnect we have to be, social relationships um, are far more important than online social relationships and I suppose um, what happened in in Wicklow uh, was unique in the sense that it was a, a local campaign all the schools came on board all the parents I take it all the parents if not most of the parents came on board uh, and it was agreed but what do you uh, make of this proposal that there just would be an outright ban uh, regardless of what schools or principals or parents or children thought, uh, that there would be no smartphones allowed in schools at all? I think it's a positive move, to be honest, Michael. And I think, you know, we all have to look at the, the data, the, medical, the medic, medical knowledge, the medical literature on the negative effects that smartphones and social media have on our young people and also on our adult, adult population. You know, increasing mental distresses, it affects it affects teenagers and their you know their the self their their, their self perception of themselves their their relationships and um, you know they're also there's a huge amount of negative interactions on on online cyberbullying that you know on social media contact is not always suitable for our, our youngest in our populations you know a high proportion of young people who engage in high heavy smartphone use mm. sleep chronic sleep deprivation, negative effects on their cognitive ability, their academic performance. And I do think that you know, we, we have, we all know that increased social media, our phones, all of that has a negative effect. We all, like, I think it's generally accepted, Michael, that we, we try to get, I'm putting the phone away now, I'm not going on it. Um, and that actually gives us space to, to think. And um, we talk about a digital detox um, and I think maybe that that brought into our schools mm. is a very positive thing, and it would end up um, in having a positive a positive impact on our children. And you know, I grew up in a time where we didn't have mobile phones at all. Um, I got my first mobile phone when I went to university, um, and it did me no harm. But I thought, what what is the harm in having our children having a time during the day where they are disconnected? with their social relationships with their schoolmates, their classmates, yeah. and their education is first and foremost, and not their online social network. Mm. Um, there is no harm in instilling positive skills um, and human skills during the day in our in our schools. Um, and, and But we have to look at, there is no harm in that, and yet there can be harm. And I see from young people in, in my in my social circle, you know, I look, look at Snapchat. There's images of you know, their classrooms, there's images of their teachers up online. You know, there there is a there is a there is an importance of people people's privacy, their dignity, um, and we're putting in we're giving our children a huge responsibility when we hand over a smartphone. Mm. Um, and I we really we really don't. 
our children are young adolescents or young children don't have the, the maturity to be able to deal with that. Taking photographs, putting them up online, not understanding the consequence, consequences of what that is. Yeah. It's there forever, all of those things. So I think a time during the day, there is zero harm in having that, which our children are disconnected from the online world well, and, in, and connected with, with the reality of, world, of the world. A ban like this may be shocking uh, for school-going children, uh, but it, it wouldn't be unique or anywhere near unique. Uh, they may be posting stuff on social media when they're in school here. They wouldn't be able to do it in France or the Netherlands uh, because there's bans there. In fact, there's uh, a ban on smartphones in schools in one in six countries in the world. Uh, are you concerned at all that we've uh, been so slow to look at this or to even contemplate introducing a ban? Yes, I mean, so I, I'm not I concerned. I think we have to be looking at the reality now and thinking, right, this is an opportunity. We have international data. We, we can, we can, we're not going to be leading the way in this by, by in no means, but we can, we can join, join other countries and look after our young people. It is really, really clear, Michael, all across the world, where our young people, particularly in the in northern hemispheres, where there is where there is more smartphone use amongst our children where we have far more mental mental anxiety and depression amongst our young people. And, you know, people can fight and say that it's, it's, it's not smartphone use, it's not social media. But again, you have to look at, you know, unbiased data on that. We have to look after it, look, look, at, look at those things and say that, yes, there is a correlation between increased smartphone use increased social media and our young people suffering from mental health conditions. Um, we, it, it's time, I suppose, maybe to be the adults in the room and say, yes, we must, we must mm. limit. Um, must limit this. And I know as, as a parent of, of children, pre-teens, of children who are not at the point of getting smartphones, I would, as a parent, I would think it would be, um, for me, I think it would be a very positive move um, to support me in what I want to do for my children and other parents and to create a new norm where our children aren't seeing that peer pressure to, to, to get the latest smartphone, to get a smartphone um, and to be online online in different ways. Like I know my, my children there, they play Minecraft. They join, they join their, their, their schoolmates in Minecraft on a, on a, so, so off, quite often. Um, and it's fun. I know. I know who they're joining. It's. It's. But we. But I have it limited. We can do it. Um, it's not about taking children off digital. Um, off computers, off laptops, off gaming. It's about having that time where they're disconnected completely, where they're connected with their friends, where they're connected with their with the social reality that is there at their classrooms, their teachers, and there's not a. We're not we're not handing them over mm-hmm. a really much um, a really high tech um, uh, piece of equipment that they can make mistakes with. Yeah. You know, maturity is not something you get all of a sudden. It's something you, you gain over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, it it could be a very very positive thing. Again, um, it's something that my Fianna Fáil colleagues have been have been supporting um, over the past couple of months. Um, I will continue to support it. And I do not think there is any harm 
in our children having a time during the day where they are disconnected. Um, and I don't think... Um, well, you know, there's a fearful minister, of course, um, uh, but it, it, it's the proposal from UNESCO is to ban the smartphones uh, for all the reasons you're saying uh, yeah. and the damage uh, that can occur as a, a result, uh, as well as all of the good uh, from using smartphones, and they can be very good educational tools in themselves, but it, it, it's the type of interaction that children are having and the way they're using the smartphones uh, which is distracting and that's why UNESCO says they should be banned from schools but they're also concerned about screen time uh, and if you take the UNESCO proposal in the round uh, would there be any point in banning smartphones and having children go to schools to work off uh, tablets or laptops? I don't think so When if, if children were on, on their tablets online um, working, working as part of their school curriculum. I don't think there's any problem problem in that. Digital literacy is a very, very important thing to be able to understand and to learn about how to get online, to use our tools maturely um, and with respect. I think that's a very important part of our school, our modern school curriculum. I don't think there's any problem in that. Um, I, I, I know in so many schools, part of the part of the curriculum is they get their they get the ta- they have the tablet or the I- the, mm. the iPads and that's part of the digital learning um, there is no harm in that it's not about mm. banning these completely it's about having the smartphone disconnected um, not being on Snapchat, not being on Instagram stories, not being putting up stuff um, about other people about their teachers during the day I, I've seen Snapchats of, of images of teachers mm. not not doing anything wrong but just giving their giving the lessons in schools I don't think, um, for even privacy reasons, I don't think that that is appropriate. Um, and by giving smartphones to children during the day provides that opportunity. Taking them off takes it away. Mm. Uh, well, I don't know, but UNESCO says uh, that uh, digital teaching uh, can be expensive and that the environmental costs are often underestimated. And it is absolutely expensive. And but I one thing from the UNESCO report from yet report was a shocking thing that one in four schools in the world have no electricity. Mm. Um, and they they, they they speak about the equality and the equity in education worldwide. And I think that that is um, that was shocking. You know, over five hundred million students worldwide um, were affected in the most marginalised and rural communities. And um, to me, that was that was a really, really shocking, um, shocking statistic to think that you know we we have a we live in a world of such abundance here, yeah. Um, and yet one in, one in four schools have no electricity, and the digital digital world is not even a concern to them. Um, turning on a light switch, um, a TV is is a is a absolute luxury. So I think um, that expense, that cost, um, yes we should always be cognizant of schools in other parts of the world right. who do not even have electricity, never mind a problem with smartphones. Okay, but they are expensive here. Uh, uh, we, we, we get calls all the time from people saying, you know, the uniform, the tablet, the books, whatever, uh, and they are expensive. I, I don't know if it's cheaper thankfully, than... Um, thankfully, in primary school have been taken care of. Yeah. Um, and that, that, 
like, to be honest, that is an incredible, incredible move by, okay. by, by the government. No, I understand. Um, and that's fair enough. But ju- just to return to the point that UNESCO is saying they're expensive uh, and that there is an environmental cost, which is often yeah. underestimated. Uh, but they're also saying that you need to put the children uh, before the importance of the technology. Uh, and they cite China, don't they, uh, as a good example uh, where they limit teaching to uh, on digital devices uh, to thirty percent of all teaching time. I think that's a that's a it's a really a really important thing. Um, and part of the UNESCO report was there is there is more importance of being able, for a child being able to read to articulate rather than being able to 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 gain digital literacy. Digital literacy will come. It's not, it's not as important as an ability to mm. read, to analyse. And you don't need to be on a smartphone to be able to read, to analyse, to, criti- to have critical thinking. We all learn that. and um, We all learn that in school without a screen. Well, do you um, think, that's what my next question is going to be, do you think that uh, yeah. you, you, you can teach children these days uh, without digital technology or do you think that children can learn without the internet? Well, I do think absolutely children can learn without the internet. But I also think that we have to look at the modern world. Digital literacy is important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. We all must be able to use, you know, the, to use digital, digital equipment. But I think the most important thing is for our children to come out with a well-rounded education, mm. to be able to analyse, to be able to read, to be able to... Very basics, Michael. Mm. Um, and and to be able to... But that's the biggest risk, isn't it? That we lose no, that. No. I mean, that, 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 and that, again, I think is uh, alluded to in the UNESCO report. We need to uh, look at where this technology is going. And this is the big scary part for all of us, AI, this artificial, artificial yeah. intelligence. Uh, and uh, children won't be saying, the dog get me homework, uh, but maybe, <laughs> m- maybe the computer wrote it for them. Yeah, and well, also, yes, and then that's, and that's most definitely part of it, what we should be looking at. That digital literacy is really important, but the critical thinking and the education around that, dig- what, 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 we, what we see online is really, really important. And, and as you said, the growth of AI, um, and it is, it, we all, Michael, have to take a learning from that, adults and children, um, and to be able to understand what is real, what is, what is not. It's a whole area it's a whole area that is is overwhelming, to be honest. And if you look at if you look at um, the chat GPT, um, we could talk we could talk for a long time on that and the risks of that, because chat GPT doesn't have um, doesn't have the, 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 the doesn't have all the doesn't have all the information. It has it, it has it gets what it, it gets the information from what it sees online. Um, and I put in a few things that um, you you get back just for testing purposes to see what would you see back from from it, and some it's it's not always hmm. it's not always real, it's not always true, it's not always perfect, and um, so we do all have to be able to say right, to analyze what we see online and to be able to understand what AI is. And again, that goes back to education. It's okay. education in our classrooms about this. It goes back to critical thinking, critical analysis. That doesn't you don't learn critical thinking, critical analysis from looking at a screen. You learn it 
you can learn it from looking at a book. You can learn it from listening to, to learning, to reading. Um, and I think, you, you know, you, there's, there's an awful lot that we must look at in our education system. Um, and I think we'll go back to the, the start of the conversation, Michael. Mm, mm. Banning smartphones in schools, there is no harm in that. Okay. Um, and there can be harm. We have seen an, an increase of cyberbullying and a terrible story mm. about that bullying being brought home. And um, bullying has always been happening in schools. But when you have no time to disconnect, um, if, you're, if you are that child who is being bullied, and it's coming into your phone at night and coming there um, and photographs of you and um, different things. Michael, we need to be able to teach our children to be able to positively disconnect positive social relations okay. in reality and online. Well, it gives and us all food for thought, doesn't it? It absolutely yeah. does. Okay. And, and, and indeed myself, I mm. always have to have to make sure that I, I, and I'm sure you're the mm. same, Michael, you put the phone away, you take a, you, you, we're addicted to looking at a screen and we can be, um, but it's about positively looking at your, your yourself and saying, okay. right, I'm putting my phone away now. Um, I'm not looking at Twitter. I'm not going to scroll. We don't need to continuously scroll and, and be and, and, and be obviously, online. if you don't have your phone, if it's banned from the school, you won't be able to do that. I'm Absolutely. out of time and over time. No I have to leave it there. But thank you very much indeed for joining us on the program today, Senator Aaron McGreen is Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on children. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to Davy who rang to say R.I.P. Sinead. She was right up there with the best of the Irish icon. Some people couldn't handle her flaws. A lot of us never saw them as flaws at all. She had the kind of bravery that the snide can only dream about. May she rest in peace. And says Sinead is and was one of Ireland's greatest musicians who used her fame to stand up for many causes in an unapologetically challenging way. She was speaking up at a time when no one in authority wanted to listen. A true trailblazer and she deserves every accolade for her service to the Irish people. Uh, a text from Olivia in Drogheda who says, I'm retired from the HSC. From my experience, it's just too top heavy. Meetings about meetings come four o'clock on a Friday and most people have gone home. We need a big shake-up. Clinicians on the ground go into schools, help these children. Many thanks. Olivia, uh, we'd uh, another text from Ellen St. Sinead O'Connor was a, a beautiful singer uh, and she was right about the abuse of children in uh, religious orders. May she rest in peace now with her young son. Uh, another caller in touch about the Gardaí unhappiness with uh, the commissioner saying there's two sides to every story with reports of corruption within the force. Uh, we'd a WhatsApp message from a parent who says, I totally agree with uh, this ban on smartphones in schools. Primary school age kids don't need phones, full stop, let alone have them in school. Social media is no place for kids. My son is 10 and is the only one in his class that doesn't have a mobile. I feel terrible uh, for him being the odd one out, but I'll not give in. He'll get one when he goes to secondary school. Somebody else texting saying, I was so upset to hear that Sinead had died but not really surprised. She was so troubled and always seemed so sad 
uh, and especially when her lovely son died. Um, we'd uh, another text uh, saying, I just got a button key phone uh, but I'm thinking of getting a smartphone I'm in my 50s and I was at a meeting yesterday in Navin uh, and uh, the woman on her top uh, in the uh, in the place that this person was in had to do everything on her laptop. Thank you indeed. Paddy Duffy wants to know which oath does the Garda Commissioner take uh, one for the Crown or one for this state? Thank you Paddy. I think a probably was the first one a while ago and now it's the second one. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.